all I want to do is preach the gospel. And so you say, oh, so you're, you're an evangelist. If you've been around church for a while, that's the first thing you would say. And I'd say, yeah, but that's not what I mean. And I said, well, well, yeah, but if you want to preach the gospel, then that means you tell people that Jesus loves them, has a wonderful plan for their life, da 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 Yes, certainly we tell them that, and that's a whole part of the story, but the gospel is a whole lot more beautiful than a couple of simple sentences. In fact, I'm convinced that the more you stare and look at the gospel, the more you actually find all the things that you've been hoping for and looking for in a relationship with God. So I want to look at a couple passages at the end of this chapter, and then we're going to go back to the, uh, to the middle of the chapter. So we're going to start in verse 17. It says that the, that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you a spirit of wisdom and revelation. So Paul is praying for the people in Ephesus, okay? And I believe that this prayer applies to us today. So he's praying that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ would give them something. He doesn't say, I pray that he gives you strength to overcome sin, interestingly enough. He doesn't say, I pray that he gives you power to break free from addiction doesn't say, I pray that he gives you an anointing to work miracles. None of those things. Instead, he prays for a spirit of wisdom and revelation. In what? In the knowledge of him. Well, hold on a second, Justin. I thought he was writing this to the church. Yeah, he is. See, we've got this major misconception in the church today where we think that the gospel's for unbelievers and, you know, all the other stuff is for us. And what we have to realize is that the, the, the primary prayer of Paul for the church of Ephesus was, was that they would get a revelation of the knowledge of Jesus, having the eyes of your heart enlightened, that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his great might. So the desire of Paul was the central component of all things in life is the gospel. And my desire, says Paul, is that you would just see it. Because if you could just see it, listen, maybe you've been a Christian 25 years, you're sitting in this room. What I'm telling you today is if you could just see what I'm going to share in the next few minutes, it will absolutely, absolutely propel you to the next level of faith in Christ. Maybe you're here today and you're not a follower of God. If you could just see today, what I'm going to share, if you could gaze upon it, it will radically change. Maybe you're wrestling with a sin. Maybe you're battling with some addiction. Maybe you're bound by fear and anxiety. Maybe you're consumed with worry. I don't know what your issue is. Maybe you just got a bad report from a doctor. I don't know what your issue is. Maybe there's a financial stress that is so intense. What I'm telling you is if you could just see this with me today, the answer to your problem is not simply just a miracle from heaven. The answer to your problem is to see him. And to see the gospel. And here's why this is so important. It's important because we can get it wrong. You know, I'm convinced that many of us live on just a sliver of the gospel. Many of us live on just a tiny piece of what the gospel truly is. Many of us only see just a hair of it, only live just a tiny bit of it. And, you know, uh, we got all kinds of confusion in our culture regarding what the gospel is, right? If you go to the average person, you say, what's, go- what's the gospel? And they'll say, well, it's a form of music, right? It's a form of music, you know? And you ask somebody else, what's the gospel? And if he's like a hardcore, you know, religious, you know, tradition, he'll say, well, the gospel is, man, you got sin in your life. You're going to go to hell. Well, that sounds like great news to me. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's pretty exciting, right? I thought it was, you know, the gospel literally means good Right. And so a lot of us have gotten the good news a little confused. And so some of us say like, oh, the, the good news is Jesus loves us. Kind of like, you know, Santa Claus is coming to town. Like, it doesn't really change my life. It's sort of this vanilla version of God. It's like, yeah, well, it's good news, but, you know, it's nice. And then probably the worst disease that we have is when we say that the gospel is a life enhancement strategy. 
If you would just do these things, you're going to have the best life in the world. You will have peace and joy and happiness. If you just put these things into practice, if you just, you know, eat this special carrot, you know, drink this special carrot juice and eat this magic food and then also do all these things, then, you know, you're going to find peace and joy and happiness, right? And that is a gospel that we hear very, very often in our culture. So then what is it really? Well, we just said it's good news, right? And if you're around me much, you're going to hear this often because I really believe it's the centerpiece of our faith. And I can't get away from it myself. And I've learned that the more I meditate and dwell on this fact, the more I actually become like Jesus. So what is the gospel? It's news. It's good news. So on December 6, 1944, a Japanese man by the name of Hiru Unado, I probably said that wrong, okay, uh, was a soldier in World War II was deployed from Japan to the Philippines, okay? He was deployed from Japan to the Philippines. He had a little uh, group, you know, platoon. And that he was, he was responsible for that platoon. And these were the instructions that his commanding officer gave him. They said, listen, you need to hide in the jungles of the Philippines. And as the enemy comes, you need to entrench yourself deep into the jungles of the Philippines. And if you stay there long enough, you'll begin to dominate that area. And there'll be fear constantly through that area. So we need you to dig in deep. We need you to stay. Don't come out of the jungles of the Philippines until your commanding officer has told you to come out. Until then, you root in, you dig in, and you fight. And you keep your eyes open for enemies. And you own that jungle stretch that you're in and so he said okay and he was deployed in 1944 if you know your history shortly after that i think it was 1945 um the war came to a strange and abrupt stop with the introduction of the of the nuclear bomb and i'm not here to teach you history so you can learn that on your own but uh what happens is they they realize that that uh hiru onada is still in the jungle and the, the war's over and so they send some diplomats to go and get him out of there, and he, uh, he won't listen to him. He doesn't believe he believes that they're enemy spies, and he won't believe the news that the war's come to an end. And so he says, listen, I'm not going with you. And so they leave him there, and so then they drop leaflets over the entire jungle, and they find the leaflets, him and his platoon, and they read them. They say, These, this is propaganda. This is propaganda. We don't believe that this is true. You know, the Illuminati sent these or whoever it was. But, you know, like, just kidding. No, but like, this is propaganda. Japan certainly didn't lose. You know, we don't think that this is, uh, this is real. So they stay in the jungle. A year goes by. Two years go by. Three years go by. And this guy is still living in the jungle after the war has ended. They begin to send other diplomats, other people. And they're robbing villagers, killing villagers in the Philippines thinking that they're doing it in the name of World War II and the battle for Japan and everything else. And this goes on and on and on. Ten years go by. Fifteen years go by. And Hiru Unada is still living in the jungles in the Philippines thinking that the war is going on. Twenty-nine years later, they finally convince this dude that the war is over and he comes out of the jungle. 1974. He went in in 1944. For 29 years, he was stockpiling ammunition. He was building uh, a base in the jungle. He was learning how to live off the food of the land for nothing. For nothing. And I thought about this guy, and I'm like, that stinks. You know, I mean, I'm just like, that's a major bummer to spend half your life in the jungle fighting a war that's not actually happening. Why? Because news changes everything. This is what you've got to understand. News changes everything. And if he had just believed the news, he wouldn't have been doing all those things. But some of us right here, 
Some of us right here are not believing the news that the war between your sin and God is over. That the war between the devil and you is over. You're not, so you're still stockpiling bullets. You're still entrenching yourself. You're still living in the jungle thinking that there's a war going on that has already been won. And so what's happened is the news, maybe you've heard it, but you said, I think that's not true. You know, I don't really believe that. You know, I'm not totally sure about that. And we haven't made the news our own. And so what I want to convince you today of is to radically, authentically, and completely believe the good news. And you might say, Justin, I'm a Christian. Well, I want to tell you that your fundamental problem, I don't care where you're at in your Christian walk, is that you're not believing a part of the good news. So let's dig in. Chapter 1, verse 7. You all ready? You can say yes. Come on, make me feel like you're paying attention. Yes, okay, good. All right, chapter 1, verse 7. Here we go. In him we have... We're going to dig into the Bible, and then we're going to try to explain a little bit of this, okay? In him we have redemption. Let's stop there. In him we have redemption. Okay, so the word redemption, you can write this down if you want. It's a releasing by payment of ransom. So what does that mean? It means that somebody came in and they paid your ransom, right? They went in, they paid for you, and you were then released, right? So ransom from what? Ransom from the current human condition. And this is where we've got to see the big picture. First, that God created the earth, right? That he created this earth. And if you say, man, I've been in church a long time, I know this stuff, just listen today so that God can give you the background to bring you into freedom. So God created the earth and he made the earth Good. You've got to believe that if you ever want to understand the reality of the gospel. He made the earth good. And that goodness extended into humanity. And he created the human race as his representative on this earth to rule. So we were given authority and dominion over everything that he made. And he put us in place as his representative for rulership. Early on in the game, the human race decided to rebel. And when we did that, we severed the connection between us and God. And no longer was the life of God flowing into us, but now there was a fracture that separated us from him, right? And so this fracture is known as sin, right? And the sin caused the chasm between us and him that still we had his nature and imprint on us, but now we found not just our actions, but our being was corrupt. And so in your bones, you find a tendency to sin. If you don't believe me, just hang out with a two-year-old. Right? And something inside of a young person or a little kid, already, you don't have to teach them to lie. I mean, believe me, if you teach them, it's even worse. But it just happens naturally. Because naturally we are children of wrath is what the scripture says. And so there is something inside of us that leads us and causes us to sin. But at the same time, we have this conscience because we've been made in the image of God that causes us to desire righteousness. And so it's this constant tension. Freud tried to figure it out. And he called it the id or the superego. And he tried to put different names on this stuff but it's like Freud you're just trying to rip off and put your own weird twisted slant on this thing it's already in the Bible and what it's saying is that there is a nature in you that is crooked and twisted and a desire and propensity to do good because you're made in the image of God and these things are in constant conflict and you find yourself with two major problems one is you're a slave ultimately to Satan ultimately to a spiritual force that is stronger than you and the second problem is that you'll be judged You'll be judged because God never changed. He's righteous, holy, and blameless, and perfect, and you're still messed up. And so this puts you at a disparity before God. So what's our response? Well, human beings usually take one of two responses, right? Response number one is to make God less holy. You can write this down if you want. So we say, well, he's not really that holy. I mean, come on, let's just, let's just pull him down a little bit. You know, like, welcome Hercules, right? He's like, he's not really, like all of Greek mythology is based on this idea that God's not really that awesome. He's like kind of jacked up like we are, right? And so this is exactly what we do. We say, well, I mean, God, you know, he's, 
right? And we think it's not that big of a deal. So we try to bring him down to our level. The other thing that we try to do is we try to make me more holy. And so we say, listen, I'm going to do better, God. I mean, how many times have you heard this? Christians, God, I'm just going to do better. God, not again. Never, never. Okay, I did it again. Right. And so we try this whole effort thing that says never again. And because we can't do it, we then make excuses for our failures. And we say, well, that guy's a lot more jacked up than I am. Right. And so we create this world that says I'm comparing myself with others and I'm trying to make it right. And we're constantly doing this. There's a constant, you know, uh, reassessing. But the news is that he came. Let's look at this again in verse Seven in him. Those are the key words. We have redemption through his blood. So it's totally outside of our strategy, right? Our strategies make God less holy or make me more holy. Either way, it doesn't work. And so God comes in with option C, which is I'm going to show up. Not me, Justin, but Jesus is going to show up in him. We have this ransom that's been paid right in him. So his whole strategy is to become a representative of the race. Now, you've got to capture this. Did you ever notice, how many of you have read some of the Gospels? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Let me see your hand. You ever notice a name that Jesus constantly refers himself as that may be a little bit awkward for you? The son of, anybody want to guess? Yeah, I mean, I'm all cool with Jesus calling himself the son of God, but more often than not, he calls himself the son of man. Does that bother you a little bit? Like, it bothers me because, like, hey, hold on, Jesus. First of all, you're not the son of man. You were born of a virgin. And second of all, like... Why, you know, why are you calling yourself a son of man when you're not a man and you're God? And shouldn't you kind of focus on that whole thing? Because everybody already thinks you're a man. So why are you calling yourself the son of man when you should be calling yourself the son of God? Boy, I wish you'd call yourself the son of God a little bit more. And the son of man a little bit less. But you've got to see from Jesus' perspective, he was pretty confident in the fact that he was the son of God. What he was regularly reminding himself of and reminding others of is the fact that he was a representative for our race. You could call him the son of mankind, the son of humanity, the son of the human race. In other words, I am here to represent you. And so God becomes man, the great mystery of the incarnation, and is dwelling among us. And so the seed of Adam carries the wickedness of the curse, but Jesus is not born from the seed of Adam. He's born from a woman who's never been with the man, no human seed, but divine seed. And there is this beautiful, fully God, fully man combination that comes together in Christ as our perfect, blameless representative. And he comes to identify with us. Check this out. If you're like a, a, a Bible scholar type of guy, you can look up Leviticus 25:48. And in, the, in Leviticus 25, 48, uh, in the Jewish law, there's, a, there's an ancient law that says this. If you fall into slavery, one of your family members can come and pay your debt. Hello. If you fall into slavery, one of your family members can come and pay your debt and redeem you. So Jesus enacts this law and becomes one of our family members by becoming the son of man. And he comes to redeem us. So how is the ransom paid? There's only one place we can turn to answer that question. And it's YouTube. So let's go to YouTube. You got YouTube ready? We're going to watch a little YouTube video. Join the 33 million people who have seen this if you have not.
I love how he just loses it at the end. Like, why doesn't anybody listen to me? You know, we're kind of sketched out by blood in our culture, aren't we? I mean, come on, you don't interact with blood. I mean, that kid was freaked out by blood, right? And you don't interact with blood nearly as much as your great-great-great-great-grandfather did, do you? You don't. I remember years ago, my father-in-law got into uh, farming and, like, having chickens. Anybody have chickens? Didn't think so. Oh, okay, sure. So a few chicken lovers here. So anyways, he wants to kill one and cook it, all right? And so he's like, Justin, I need, I need to kill this chicken. I need your help. So I'm like, I'm like a city guy. Like, I'm like, I don't, I don't even I feel bad when I hit the squirrel, man. I mean, I've never, I've never killed a chicken. So I'm like, all right, I'll help you out. And so me and uh, my wife's uncle and my father-in-law go out to kill this chicken. And so it's my job to hold the chicken down. No fun. Let me tell you, not funny. And so anyways, he gets this, this ax that looks more like a tomahawk and it's probably about as blunt as a kitchen knife, you know? And he starts, he starts getting ready. So I'm holding the, the neck and the head of this chicken. And it's not thrilled about being held down like this, by the way. And so it's kind of freaking out and flailing. And he takes this tomahawk and he hits it. And the first hit, I knew we were all in trouble because it was like doing nothing. It was like hitting it with a rock. And it was, it, it was like, no. And so he hits it again and he hits it again and hits, and then the, blood starts, you know, and I'm just like, oh, this was terrible. And then boom, finally gets the thing off and the head just, anyways, we pull the thing out, we drain it, we pull it off. And the worst part was we finally eat the chicken and it's like, we're sitting there. I'd never forget this in the kitchen. We're all like, after like four hours of work, like pretty, pretty good. It's like the gamiest, nastiest bubblegum chicken you've ever had in your life. After so much work, it's like, okay, I'll go to Stop and Shop. I'll buy it. Like, let's just, let's just throw this thing. It was, a, it was a disaster. But you know, the blood just freaked me out. Anybody ever been in the room when a baby was delivered? I've been in there twice. And I remember the first time, the only thing I could think. Come on, doctors. I know there's a few uh, medical people in here. The only thing I could think, I asked the doctor like seven times. I was like, is that okay that there's that much blood everywhere? You know, it's like, it was like, I was like, I don't think my little wife has a whole lot more blood to give and it's like everywhere. And so I'm thinking maybe you should be patching something or something like that. Cause there is just absolutely a ridiculous amount of blood and it's not funny. And I'm not really confident that she's doing okay. And you know, this whole thing of blood, does anybody get totally spooked by blood and you like pass out? Come on liars. Yeah. There's a few of us in here. Yes, you do. And like just the smell of it or the sight of it, it's just like, uh, well, I mean, imagine in like the old days, like this was not something that we were sheltered from. I mean, even 200 years ago, this was something that was a very normal and natural part of everyone's life. And the scripture has a lot to say about blood in Genesis chapter four, verse 10. Check this out. It says that the voice of Abel's blood cries from the ground. Do You know that blood talks. That's a weird thought, isn't it? Blood talks. If you have a Bible and you want to turn there, it's going to be up on the screen. Leviticus 17. Listen to what, this is a crazy passage. Listen to what it says in the Old Testament in Leviticus. This is a window into how God views blood. But we're going to get back to this idea of redemption. This is critical. For the life of the flesh, this is uh, Leviticus 17:11. Stay with me this morning. For the life of the flesh is in the, anybody want to guess? Blood. And I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Think about this. What the scripture is saying, just try this on for a second. Maybe you've been around church, you've heard this stuff. I want you to just think about it afresh this morning. What I'm telling you is that, is that God created blood in the human, actually in all creatures, and that blood carries life itself. Life is 
packed into the blood. And if you're, if you're a medical person, you know that, and I didn't know this, but that oxygen and uh, nutrients uh, flow through your blood, right? That's kind of one of the key purposes of your blood to sort of like transfer those things all over the place. And it pulls out all your waste, right? All your junk, it pulls out. And so in the Old Testament, when people sin, they would kill an animal, not because they enjoyed killing animals. They'd kill an animal because that blood would come out of the animal and it would cover or atone the sin because they had caused death through their sin and now they were going to cover it with life through the blood. So what if God had blood? If God had blood, how much life could fit in God's blood? Think about this for a second. If blood flows through life, how much life could flow through God's blood? Go back to the chapter here, verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. Think about this for a second. God became man, dwelt among us, and shed his blood, and that spotless perfect blood of the Son of God was enough to free every human of every sin for all the days of human history. In Him, we have redemption through His blood. And this is probably the most happy passage in the New Testament for me. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the accuracy of our confession. Oh, wait a second. Oh, sorry, Brother Ron. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the discipline of our actions. Oh, no, that was wrong again. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to how well we obey his commands. Wrong again. The forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. This has nothing to do with you, friend. Nothing. Your redemption is not about you it's about him he did it already in him we have redemption through his blood the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace stay with me here this has got to get deeper into your brain today which he don't you love this word lavished upon us now how many of you know the story of the fish and the loaves where jesus multiplies all the fish let me see your hand so if you know the story the disciples are out of food and they need more food and there's like a billion people there like 5,000, but anyways, you know, and they, they have to give them, you know, they only have like a few fish and a few loaves. It happens twice, actually. And Jesus prays for it. He blesses it. It multiplies. They feed everybody. And then they pick up all these basketfuls of bread and fish afterwards, and it abounds. That word abounds that the scripture uses to describe how much was left over is the same word here that's used to say he lavished it on us. In other words, he had way more than they, there was needed. They didn't have, there's no, there's no act, there's no running out. It's like, well, if I sin 5,000 times, is that too many? No. Well, what about 50? No. Well, what? No, there's no running out. His grace and his blood carried so much life that he washed it away for all eternity. From the day you were born until the day you die, you're already clean. You're cleansed. You're washed. You're pure. It's gone. Why are you so fixated on it? In him, we have redemption through his blood. He lavishes it on us. So in him, there's redemption in his blood, the forgiveness of all of our sins, according to the riches of his grace. Somebody say, this is good news. 
The war is over. The war is over. Why am I still battling if the war is over? The more clearly I see that the war is over, the more accurately I live according to my victory. Hello. What I'm telling you today is that the victory has already been won. Let's just keep reading here in verse 9. It says, making known to us the mystery of his will. This is cool, right? So he's going to tell us what he's been planning all these years. Making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of the time. So here's the plan. To unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. What does this mean? It means earthly gets to go to heaven because of him. And it means heavenly gets to come to earth because of him. Do you see what I'm saying here? In terms of what I'm saying is that all of my earthly garbage is washed away so that a, that a sinner can go to the heavenly realm because of him and the righteous, holy, perfect God can indwell a man like me because of him. He's removed the boundaries, and the borders between heaven and earth. And he's allowed them to flow freely through his blood. Here's the big idea. If you want to write something down, write this down. Maturity in Christ. This may blow your brain away. And if it doesn't, I pray that it does. Maturity, not literally, of course. Maturity in Christ comes not from getting better at Christian disciplines, but from realizing what is already ours through the gospel. Friend, if you miss this, you're going to take those characters, king messages, and you're going to work harder at them. And you're going to try harder at becoming a better, better Christian. You're going to say, I'm going to work harder. I'm going to be better at it. No, you're not. No, you're not. You're not because it's not going to work. What you need to do is work more at staying in his grace. Work more at meditating on his love. Work more at fixing your eyes on him. Because the more you do that, the more the fruit will come right out of your life of the spirit. Maturity in Christ comes not from getting better at Christian disciplines, but from realizing what is already ours through the gospel. You can write that down if you want. Maturity in Christ, I'm going to say it one more time, comes not from getting better at Christian disciplines, but from realizing what is the more thoroughly. Listen, I'm telling you, the last five years of my life, I've grown more in Christ because of this one revelation than anything else. This is how it comes. You know, people's last words are always interesting. Don't you like to read people's last words? Does anybody else like to do that? I like to do that. You know, um, recently Steve Jobs passed away. You know, I read his last words and it just gave me chills. He said, oh, wow. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. He said it three times and then he died. And I wonder in that moment, what was he seeing? In that moment, what did he just realize? In that moment, what had grabbed his attention for him to say that? You know what Jesus' last words were according to the Gospel of John? It is finished. That's what his words were. It's done. It's done. He didn't say it's begun. He said it's over. It's done. This old way of trying to earn your way to God and this old way of trying to pull God down by making him not who the Bible says he is, is over. So stop trying to pick and choose the nature and character of God that you like and taking out the things that you don't like. Stop doing that. And stop trying to compare yourself to others and say, well, I'm not really that bad because this guy's sleeping with everybody and I'm only sleeping with a few people. And whatever your excuses are, stop doing all of that and realize that none of this is going to make you more like Jesus. But you've got to be railroaded by the reality of his grace. And when you become railroaded with the reality of his grace, it's no longer a wrestling match to obey him. Now your heart longs to make him Lord over all things because he dwells inside of you. And the Holy Spirit manifests holiness. So let's get practical and then let's wrap this up this morning. Application. 
Martin Luther, the great church father, said this. I like this. He said, preach the gospel to yourself every day. If you want to write that down, you can, or just write it on your forehead, whatever's best for you. But preach the gospel to yourself every day. What does this mean? It means that all of us need this, not just sometimes, daily. Daily, I need to believe and receive the grace and the mercy of God over my life every second of every day because it is the power to then make me more like him. So preach the gospel to yourself every day. You know, you can just look in the mirror and say, he likes me. You know that truth when it gets in you, it's like, what? Jacked up person like me? He likes me. He loves me. He thinks I'm cool. He likes my cardigan. It's awesome. He loves me. Jude 121, you can meditate on this one. Keep yourself. I love this verse. Keep yourself in the love of God. What a great command. That's your application. You keep yourself. How do you keep yourself in the love of God? By constantly believing that he loves you. And you know what you'll find? You'll sin less. That's what you'll find. You'll sin less. Why? Because you're keeping yourself in the acceptance and the grace of your father. Here's the last one that I've been meditating on this one all week. 1 John 4.16, the whole passage there is very cool, but it says, whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So in other words, what he's saying is he's saying this. He's saying, listen, if you would just stay in his love, you're actually staying in him, and the spirit of God will live in you, because whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. And then he says this. You can, this is bonus. It's not in the notes, but it says this. By this, the love of God is perfected in, the, in us. How? By abiding in him, by staying in that relationship of his love, by believing and accepting the mercy that he has for us. One more passage, and then we're going to wrap it up with a, with a monster challenge today. Um, you guys are ready for a monster challenge because it's, it's go time here, folks. Week 10. Week 10 is go time. So 2 Corinthians. We'll, we'll, do, the, we'll do the passage for 2 Corinthians uh, chapter five, 5. And I want to give you three things really quick. Seeing the gospel inspires worship. Because when you see what he's done, it's like, Phew. You have to worship. You have to exalt him. It also enables holiness. See, holiness is not, uh, you know, found by the disciplines of the flesh. Holiness is found by the greatness of God in you and through you. So this is not an excuse to not live holy. In fact, it's the power to live holy. You see what I'm saying? So living in sin and not being bothered by that is evidence that Christ does not live in you. Because if he did, the Holy Spirit would be drawing you to a desire for holiness. Living in sin and being tortured by that sin, bothered and wounded by that sin, is actually evidence that Jesus is inside of you, bothering the snot out of you, until you see the power of God in you to overcome and walk in victory over that sin. So be encouraged, those who are, are bound and really ticked off about it. Because it means that Jesus is in you and that he's going to help you and enable you to be free. And then holiness, or seeing, excuse me, seeing the gospel enables holiness and empowers Love. It empowers love. Check this out. For the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 14. I mean, sorry, 5.14. For the love of Christ controls us. Why? Because we've been really good Christians for a long time. Nope. Because we've concluded this. In other words, we made a mental belief. And out of that mental belief came a radical, crazy fire of love inside of us. The love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that he has died for all. Therefore, all died. In other words, I was supposed to die for my sins before God, but I already did. I already did because he died for me. And his death was my death, and so it's a done deal. One died for all, therefore all died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who has died, who him for their sake has died and was raised. 
See, this is what happens. The band can come back up. This is what happens. Is that when you begin to see the gospel, it swallows all other ambitions. You know how I know when a person's really seen the gospel? They're just not obsessed with anything else. They don't really care about their clothes or their car or their, you know, big degree or their whatever. And those things are important at different phases in life. But there's this overwhelming, all-consuming, life-swallowing joy that has found its way into them. And that joy is because they've seen the gospel. They've seen the good news. And they're no longer hiding in the jungle, stockpiling ammunition. Instead, they are free because the war is over. They're done with the war. Okay. So, uh, what's the date today? 20th? So today's the 20th. And here's my passion, okay? This cannot stay amongst us as a community. We're 10 weeks in. Visitors, welcome. We need a lot more of you. We want to see a city and a region changed by his love. That's what we want to see. And so it has got to spread beyond us. But we've got to be people that have seen the gospel, the good news, and that it's so filled us with light and hope that we have to share it for others. There's this passage. You can write this down. If you're really spiritual, Romans chapter nine. No, I'm just kidding. Anybody should write this down. Where should, I think it's verse one. He says, Paul says, uh, I have unceasing anguish, sorrow in my heart. For I wish that I myself were accursed, separated from God for the sake of my brothers. What? Really? You love God so much that you would actually give away your life for the sake of your brothers. That's a radical idea. You know why? Because the love of Christ controls me. Having concluded this, one died for all, therefore all. I am so consumed with the reality that he loves me, with the fact that it's done, with the deal that the war is over, that I want to give my life for others to know that. And that's exactly what we want to do here. And so today we want to start two new initiatives in this community. The first is that every one of us is reading the scripture every day. Because, you know, I think if we had an honesty poll, and I'm not trying to condemn anybody, but if we had an honesty poll in here, I bet 90% of us don't read the scripture every day. And I would urge you to use that sheet that you got when you walked in to begin the discipline of developing a daily time with God because this is how he transforms you when you behold him. The second thing that we want to initiate today is a radical, supernatural prayer covering. And so we're passing out right now, the, the, uh, the servant team can start to do this. We're passing out a prayer list, okay? And mine is already full. You've got 10 spots on this prayer list. And just think about this. If there's 150 people in this room and we all pray for 10 people, that means every single day this little community is praying for 1,500 people. And here's what I'm asking. The people that you know that are far from God, the people that you know that aren't near him, the people that you know that are, that are you know, distant from God or maybe they're just, they're just in a position where they just you know, are angry at religion or spirituality. I don't know what their life story is. Hopefully you know. Maybe it's your mom. Maybe it's your brother. Somebody that, is, you know, that you are going to pray for every single day and begin to ask. And I'm telling you, if you're a part of this community, this is something we will constantly go back to. Constantly. Because I believe that it has to be our DNA that we pray for people who don't know Jesus. Why? Because we have an unceasing anguish and sorrow in our hearts because our desire is to see them know this crazy, incredible love that we've seen. We are tired of watching them stockpile ammunition in the jungle, condemned, afraid, making God someone he's not, or trying to be someone they can never be on their own strength because they don't know Christ. And so I want everybody just to take one of these 
And I want you even right now to begin to ask the Holy Spirit, Lord, who should I be praying for to come to know you? And I'm so excited about this. About one month from now, December 18th, um, City Church has already rented uh, Toad's Place. And uh, on December 18th, we are going to have the biggest, craziest Christmas extravaganza that you have ever experienced in your entire life. Okay? Now, here's why we're doing this. Let me be really clear about this. One is because a lot of people in New England don't like to go to church, but they like to go to Toad's, right? So you can invite them to church and Toad's at the same time. So this is a major win. So in the evening, it's going to be an evening service, 6 p.m. There's going to be no morning service that day on the 18th. It's all going to be focused on this evening service. And what we're going to do is we are going to pray and invite every single person we know to this thing. Praying daily that God would speak to them and use this opportunity. Now, there's no easier place to invite somebody that doesn't like God than toads. And there's no easier time than Christmas time. And so if you ever had an easy opportunity to sucker somebody into coming to church with you, this is your opportunity, okay? That guy that's denied you 25 times, this is the perfect, come on, dude. Toads, man, you can look at Billy Idol the whole time if you want. Just come and listen and be a part of this. And we are going to feed them with the most extravagant foods that you can imagine. And then we are going to dump Jesus on them. Okay? We are. And it's going to be fun. And I'm telling you, I believe that people will be radically changed by the love of God. And you can tell them, listen, man, everybody goes to a Christmas service. Come on, you non-practicing Catholic. Even you go to, wouldn't you rather go to one of Toad's? Come on. And you can get them to to come along, right? And so what we want to do is we want to create right now two simultaneously things happening. One is every one of us is in the word every day. Two, every one of us is praying daily for our friends that we've written down on that list. And then three, I said two, but there's really three. Then we're preparing for this thing on Christmas time to draw people to come to an event that they can hear about Christ. Okay? And we're going to do stuff like this all the time, but it, it is time to move. We cannot. I mean, God's doing great things through us as a community, but we cannot stay still. So let's practice not staying still right now and go ahead and stand on your feet. As my wife sings this song this morning, I just want to urge you, don't leave yet. You know, don't, uh, don't fly out the back door or anything. Take this time in worship. It's one of the most powerful times you can have to begin to focus as we sing this song about the greatness of God. Focus your attention on him and meditate on everything that we've said. In him, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our trespasses. In fact, Emily, let's not put the words of the song up. Let's just put that passage up, verse 7 and 8. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. And in verse 9, I think it is, it says, which he lavished on us. And I want you just to meditate on this truth. And I want you to begin to think about the fact that this blood, the blood of the perfect son of God was shed for me. And the news is that the war is over. I no longer have to try to earn God's love. I no longer have to be worried that he doesn't like me. I no longer have to be afraid of hell. Because if I would trust wholeheartedly in this truth, I can leave the war. Or you can stay in the jungles of your own guilt, fear, and unbelief. And you can stay in a place of not believing that love, God really does love you like this. 1 John 
says we have come to know and believe the love that God has for us. And I don't care where you're at in your Christian walk, 30 years or five minutes, or maybe you're not even a Christian yet today. I want you to meditate on this truth and ask the Lord to reveal to you his love this morning. God, would you do that as we worship in Jesus' name?